Hello, 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 everyone. Welcome back to your favorite podcast, The Africanist. Thank you for tuning in. Today, we are going to listen to part two of my discussion with Akram Burton, head of the Kentucky Center for African American Heritage. On our previous episode, Akram took us on a journey through his years of activism in Boston, Massachusetts, as well as his relationship with Robert F. Williams, who was the head of the NAACP in Monroe, North Carolina. Here is the rest of my discussion with Akram Burton. I hope you'll enjoy it. Um, but at the same time, the, they were trickling back. There was a white couple that had meandered into the black section of Monroe. And Rob saw them and went out and the good heart that he had says, look, I'm, I'm going to tell you this. You need to come in my house now because I'm not going to do anything with you. But these people are angry and I really fear for your your Lies. safety. Mm-hmm. All right. So when things calm down, they let he said, you can go now. They crossed the track. Now, at the, at the time, Jesse Helms, who the senator, Jesse Helms, his father was the sheriff of Monroe. And he really had bitter <laughs> rivalries and, and hated Rob. All right. And when he found out that the couple was in his house, he made them say that they were kidnapped. That they were kidnapped by Rob. Rob, right. So the word got out to Rob that they were looking for him to, to arrest him for kidnapping. And him and his wife fled in the, and his two sons fled in the darkness of night. All right. So remember I told you about our allies. To this day, people don't know how he got from Monroe, North Carolina to Cuba with his family intact. All right. I, I know. All right. Um, Are you going to tell us? Well, I mean, they, they, <laughs> first of all, they split up. Okay. They split up. Mm-hmm. All right. So they were looking for a family mm-hmm. um, and uh, they split up. And they had connected with uh, some uh, of uh, other uh, revolutionary forces that helped them to go underground and to escape into Canada. Um, and um, there's speculation or uh, rumors that they uh, escaped uh, through a hearse. Okay. Right. Yeah. Now, we have some things that can kind of qualify that because uh, they found uh, a hearse with a cache of guns <laughs> uh, never really co- I mean it, there's really nobody has it's a really good thing to research nobody's really kind of filed through uh, with that the brothers uh, they know all right they know the full details of, of all of that um, so um, Rob turns up in Cuba all right, and became very close with Fidel, um, and Fidel liked him and says, "Look, you know, you want to do a radio program," so he allowed him to do Radio Free Dixie, mm-hmm. and a lot of Afro-Cubans worked with him to put together the program and things like that, and they identified with his politics because of this the situation in Cuba then, and also if you look at the, it's the same situation today, just a little bit different. Um, and Rob used to tell them, I'm not your leader, 
you know, Fidel is your leader. Um, but they identified with his nationalistic, you know, um, uh, uh, philosophy. And Raul, Fidel's brother, who was a hardliner, didn't like Rob. He said he was divisive. And he always argued that he shouldn't be having the privileges. And it became very tense. And between Raul and, 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 and Robert Rob, Williams. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and his faction, mm-hmm. you know. So Rob had written a letter, as I mentioned earlier, to all these world leaders. Well, the letter that went to Mao Zedong, Mao wrote a letter back to him. And the embassy came to Cuba and it was inviting him and his wife to come to China. for National Day, to, to China for National Day. And so he left his two sons there. They went to China. They were greeted with a warm welcome. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was during that time that both him and his wife made the decision that they were going to do exile in China uh, because of the situation in Cuba. So they came back, and eventually they, they went to China. And in, uh, while in China, he was invited to many national gatherings and international gatherings and he was always at Mao Zedong's side. Um, he could tell you stories that's amazing. Like he, he tells the story about Mao and Jiang Jing. You know, Jiang Jing was part of the gang of four. Mm-hmm. All right. And Jiang Jing is Mao's wife. Mm-hmm. All right. So they're in the Great Hall of the People and Jiang Jing comes out mm-hmm. all right, behind the curtains and stands next to Rob and Rob says what are you doing? You know, you or his wife, why are you doing? He said, this is the only chance I get to see him. This is what she's saying to Rob. (laughs) Right. Uh, But there's another really interesting story is just before the Shanghai communique, Mm -hmm. which is what normalized relations between the United States and China, Kissinger had been making, making trips back and forth. And so every time Kissinger came, Mao would have Rob Rob right to the side. (laughs) And the, when he came one time, he says, well, what is he doing here? <laughs> and Mal says, look, if I was in your house and, and you had a guest, I'm not going to ask you. <laughs> what are they doing? Right. right. So in other words, shut up. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, this is my friend. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, so what I think took place was the opportunity for him to come out of exile because at that time, there were no Americans that understood the leadership of China because they had cut themselves off because of the tensions between the two. Mm-hmm. And Rob knew. So the University of uh, Michigan, which had a major China s- studies program, arranged for him to be exiled from uh, Tanzania to uh, Conyers was involved in that. Congressman Conyers. There's a whole story behind that. They felt he was. He had a mal suit on and everything. Mm-hmm. They thought he had a bomb. All right. So he they pulled him off in England. Mm-hmm. All right. There was a big international incident, and finally they allowed him to fly into the United States. Now, who who's they in this context? The, Is it the uh, the U.S. government? Interpol. Or? Oh, okay. In the wow. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm just cutting through the chase, okay. right? <laughs> okay. I think it was also the U.S. government through Interpol. Okay. All right. Uh, 
and uh, finally they were able. The, the The issue was is that they wanted him extradited. They wanted to extradite him to North Carolina, but they had to get him to Michigan because Michigan had no extradition agreements with anybody. So if he was to fly into Michigan, he could not be extradited to to um, North Carolina. North Carolina. All right. But he so, could still be tried in, yeah, because yeah. he's still in the U.S. He's still in the U.S. U.S. territory. Yeah, but it, and it, it could yeah, still the, 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 go on the trial. The, 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 the legal system of North Carolina mm. is where he had to be tried, not in oh. Michigan. Okay. It's not a federal, you know. But anyway, they, and even the federal government was in. It's a federal offense to kidnap. All right, and I'm not clear on the laws completely, but I do know that they could not touch him, and also that the powers to be affiliated with Michigan said he's too an important person. Mm -hmm. Now he he caught a lot of criticism for that because mm -hmm. people who were uh, uh, political activists were saying, "Oh, you sold out." I right. mean, it, it, it doesn't it's that's what it seems like to me. Well, his position, his position is, his position was, and I, I spoke to him about this. Mm -hmm. His position was, is that why is it all the time that we sold out or that they, that, that they are picking his brain? Why isn't it that he is not picking their brain? All right. Um, the, the, the thing is this, is that, um, what happened was one of the, the couple, died the, the husband the husband the couple that, that was kid so supposedly kidnapped. right yeah they were and then the woman finally kidnapped. admitted it was a lie okay all right okay and they knew they knew it was a lie all right so they were trying to buy time mm. you know to to sort this out the woman didn't want any part of this you know mm. i lived in charlotte north carolina um I actually attended his funeral. Rosa Parks gave the eulogy, mm -hmm. um, and I have that on videotape. And uh, one of the things that I found out in talking to white people in Monroe, North Carolina, is they said that if Rob had not come along when he did, there would have been a whole lot of bloodshed. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, the fact that he had formed the Rifle Club All right. They all became members of the NRA. Interesting. And, and, and the NRA didn't even know that this was a black chapter in Monroe, North Carolina. Interesting. Uh, now, here's the interesting part. The reason why they formed this is because on Sundays after church, the white men will be up on the hill mm -hmm. getting drunk. And then once they got inebriated, they would ride through town you know, firing their guns in their pickups. So once they formed the rifle club and the gun club, every Sunday, Rob's group would be down at the bottom of the hill cleaning their guns. Waiting for... Waiting for them to come through. To come down. Mm. They never did it anymore. Interesting. A gun, <laughs> a shot was never fired. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So... Uh, These are stories that I think are important um, to mm -hmm. understand. Martin Luther King, I forget who the other person was, came to Monroe asking him 
not to push this whole notion of because he used to walk around with his with, with his, his gun. gun, and he says you're, you're president of NAACP. You can't you can't walk around. Mm-hmm. So Rob asked King one simple question. He said, "Do you have a bodyguard?" King said, "Yes." He says, "Does that bodyguard have a gun?" He said, "Yeah." He said, "Well." What's the difference? I just want to carry my own gun. <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, so, of course, he couldn't get through to him, and they left, and they suspended him. Like the NAACP suspended him. Yeah, yes. suspended him as president. Of the, the, and they the elected chapel. his wife. And his wife was worse. <laughs> I mean, wow. in terms of self-defense, mm-hmm. right? There's a really famous picture of him and his wife mm-hmm. both brandishing firearms. Yeah, I've seen that yeah. picture. Uh, um, you know, Mabel was a force to reckon with, you know, and uh, um, both of his sons came back. They were in China so long. They didn't speak English. They spoke Chinese, fluent Chinese. Wow. And, Are they, uh, they still alive? No, John passed just recently. Rob Jr., he, he passed. He had, he had uh, uh, some kind of condition and he passed. I want us to have a special episode mm-hmm. on Rob. Right, right. Because he is an interesting figure who was, like you said, uh, the leader of the NAACP, chap- NAACP chapter in North Carolina and a very atypical leader because NAACP is not known with with guns. They, their whole thing is litigation. Right. Right? But then you have this guy who is half NAACP or embodying half the NAACP policies and, 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 and philosophy, and then the other half is 100% Man. Black Panther. So it's very he's, he was very atypical as a, a uh, civil rights leader. Yeah, I think if you really want to have a good, clear, and concise mm-hmm. um, understanding of who Rob was, um, read Tim Tyson's book, Robert F. Williams, Uh, Negroes with guns. Mm-hmm. Um, it was actually his dissertation, and I remember Rob calling me, or I, I may have called him, and he said, "I'm trying to work this out." You know, he said um, one of the things that he found difficult is to find black scholars that could tell his story. He asked me the question. He said, "Where are all the black scholars?" And I said, "What's the problem?" He says, I, "You know." I can't find a black scholar that's interested in telling my story. Tim was a great scholar. I mean, he he's written several books since his book, and Tim's a great guy. Tim's white, and he was from North Carolina. And what Rob came to the realization of is that during that time within the canon, you know, if you wanted to be successful in the canon, you could not do research on black things versus white scholars could do All right. So it was a period of time where you saw books about black people, especially black people of the 60s, where white people could only tell those stories. Not to say that some didn't get through. I'm not I'm not saying it was just like that across the board. But in mm-hmm. general, that was the thinking that it was not a it was not a challenge. It was not a stress for a black person to do a dissertation on Robert Williams. So that that worked out. So but Tim did an excellent job. It's mm-hmm. a wonderful book. It's uh, I've read both his dissertation and, and the books. Yeah. So 
In the 1950s, and I think you mentioned that already uh, at the beginning of this discussion, in the 1950s and 70s, and even prior to that, there was a vibrant partnership and strategic exchange among black Atlantic social movements. However, in the African post-independence period and uh, the decline, quote-unquote, of the civil rights movement after the death of King and all these other civil rights leaders, we have seen a hiatus in these relationships. Why is that? And should we rekindle these relationships in the fight against racial discrimination, systemic racism, and the struggle for economic uh, prosperity? If you look at what happened during apartheid, um, I mentioned to you about this notion of call and response. Mm. During the 60s, we made a call, and we got a response from our brothers and sisters in Africa. The work of Malcolm on the continent within that one year after he left the Nation of Islam is something that needs to really be studied. Definitely. <laughs> because he met with a number of leaders in Africa because yeah. it was all part of his strategy to take this, mm-hmm. our plight, to the United Nations. And, uh, and he did address the, the organization of uh, uh, yeah. the African Union. Absolutely. Absolutely. About coordinating the struggle right. and right. the importance of linking up. With so when you ask that question, like, why, mm-hmm. I think you already know the answer <laughs> to that, right? Uh, uh, but, but it's just like, you know, like you said earlier, education is key. And these are stuff that a lot of folks, people of my generation don't know. People who are even older do not know. I'm lucky enough that... In my field of study, I encountered these uh, stories and books that helped me learn about this stuff. But today, with everything going on on the continent, in the United States, in the diaspora in general, it kind of brings back the memory of the 60s and the 70s. And then it also makes you wonder if Pan-Africanism as an ideology isn't it the answer to some of the black issues, whether it's on the continent or in the diaspora? They did to the Pan-Africanist movement the same thing they did to the Panthers, to the Republic of New Africa, to all the major organizations that we have organized for our liberation. So what we need to understand is, is that uh, whenever we have created a counter-narrative, there's always been an attempt to disrupt, all right? Definitely. And so what we have to do is be conscious of that, all right? And that's when I talk about self-defense, mm-hmm. all right? Self-defense is not necessarily physical all the time. It's defending our narrative, all right? Um, and I just believe that we missed the boat. I think that what is needed right now, I've traveled throughout Africa. Africa has institutional development. Uh, they have major scholars. Um, Jake Anadiep is a major influencer on me in terms of what he contributed. And he also influenced John Henry Clark, which I also studied with. We need to establish think tanks that involve both African scholars and African-American scholars, Afro-Brazilian scholars, Afro-Cuban scholars. All right. In the 60s, we were calling for the world black revolution. Why were we calling for that? Because everywhere you go, 
on the planet, the black man is on the bottom. And we have a common oppression. All right, so when you ask the question why, <laughs> who are the, who's the oppressors? Who are the oppressors? Why would he even make a recommendation like that? All right? Mm -hmm. But now they have a bigger problem. They have a problem of us coming together, but now they have the problem of the Chinese. The Chinese are now involved. And a lot of people ask me, because I, I, you know, as a result of being a mentor of Robert Williams, I've been to China nine times since 1977. My first trip to China was in 1977, one year after Mao Zedong's death. And I subsequently traveled back there. All right. I met with people that knew him. It was part of my quest to, to do a documentary about him. About I, Mao, Mao? No, about Robert oh, S. Williams. Oh, Robert Williams. About Williams. Robert S. Williams, okay. yeah. And um, I have film footage that the documentary studio mm -hmm. is shot of him. There's a film out. If you go online and YouTube, it's called Robert F. Williams in China. It's a, a, a two-hour It was one of them old propaganda films that uh, they did. And it's a two-hour film. Um, so I went to the documentary studio where they made that. And uh, they gave me permission to, if I wanted to utilize it in any kind of documentary that I could. Um, so, you know, I, I'm, I'm only saying this to say that, you know, when we, when we talk about internationalism, we need to understand that our struggle is international. When, one of the times that I went to China in 1995, I went the same month that they had the Million Man March. And this is very important, Bamba. Um, and it's something that I've been dedicated to is that when we were in Hong Kong for the first African-American film festival in Hong Kong. <clears throat> they had arranged for interviews. I was there with Carl Franklin and Sinclair uh, Bourne, uh, uh, Julie Dash, uh, Nima Barnett. These are all accomplished filmmakers that were actually showing their films in, in Hong Kong. And we had a whole list of interviews with radio stations and TV stations. I have a number of those interviews um and all they wanted to ask us was about the million man march so after the first couple interviews we were saying like you know what we need to do what we are here to do and that's to set the record straight because you know what they were talking about here they were asking us questions that were not had anything to do with the million man march so we actually did a counter narrative and when I came back, I talked with some of the organizers of the Mini Man March, and I talked in general to activists. I said, from now on, when we do a national piece like that, we need to have people out internationally with the understanding of creating a counter-narrative because what happens is that BBC and all these other national, international news agencies were like parrots. They were just repeating what was being pushed out. And so communications becomes the key for us. You know, um, this is one of the, the reasons why I think your podcast is so important. All right. We need more of them. All right. Um, we have the ability now with these iPhones and these smartphones and what have you. We have the ability now with our smartphones to have a dialogue. Right. In the 60s, we didn't have such technology. So the dialogue was us getting out in the street, putting our bodies on the line. All right. And forcing them to cover 
us, the media. All right. It wasn't until they saw children getting hosed and bitten by dogs. It wasn't until they saw the aftermath of a church being bombed that it began to impact public sentiment. Today, with the iPhone and with the technology that we have, it has escalated the situation. Part part of what we're seeing is a result of the of the media. The mm-hmm. fact that they had several different point of views of that devil leaning on George Floyd's neck. So communication becomes key. All right. I believe we have some African leaders that would support. And I think that OAU would support the development of think tanks that focuses on specific kinds of things. Former Ambassador Erikana Chiambori has who, been... Who was the, the ambassador of the African Union in right, the United States. In the United States. Who was she, demoted she, um, recent, well, back in January, right. under some very weird circumstances. Right. Well, it wasn't weird. <laughs> well, Fran- France, France, that, yes. France shut her down, man. France Definitely. went to the... Her- because France she talked went- about the... The CFA, right? The mechanism of the CFA and how France has basically held these francophone African countries into a very corrosive system, economic system, and pumping money from them for decades now, and nobody can do anything about it. Yeah, and uh, she has since uh, developed a new organization. Mm-hmm. Um, if you want to learn more about that, you can go to our. A-D-D-I dot org. That's our O-U-R-A-D-D-I dot org. I would like to invite her uh, on this podcast. Well, so. okay. So I just spoke with her two days ago. Um, and I'm planning to go to Tennessee in August. Right? Because, you know, she has the Africa house in Tennessee. Yes. And... Uh, it's an old slave plantation. Big. It's unbelievable. I'll send you pictures of it. It's, it's incredible. Mm-hmm. And uh, she's right across the... Uh, it's in Gallatin. All right? Right across the Kentucky line. So Gallatin is a very key area for resistance. All right? Um, both her and her husband are medical doctors. They practice in that community for years. Mm-hmm. Um Maybe what I can do is when I go down, uh, in fact, maybe I can elicit your help <laughs> because <laughs> she, her husband is an African art collector. Yes. Did I show you the, the uh, video? Yeah, I think. Yeah. No, well, but we had a conversation a yeah. uh, long time ago about them donating some yeah. of the so art pieces. We are going to, they... we were trying to arrange us going down to pick up the pieces that we can bring back. To put on exhibition, okay. so I'll need a couple of hands. Sure, but, but what we could also do, and, and she would do it, uh, is we can incorporate the interview in that as well. Oh, that that would be great. Yeah, yeah, that would be great. So let's, um, we'll talk about it. She she made a powerful, powerful speech just recently. I'll send you a clip of it. I have it. It's on Facebook. Yeah, about the George Floyd situation. Uh, well, she talked about the Joy Fourth decision, but she talked about what we have yeah. been talking about today yeah, I, in terms I, yeah, of African Union. Yeah, I've, yeah. I've, I've listened to it. This is uh, this was one. a uh, six hour 
Oh, it uh, might be different. Like, yeah. Because yeah, she probably had the same verbiage, you know. Yeah. But I'll send you this particular clip okay. because this Definitely. one was very, very strong. Um, I got off track there, but I think that uh, you know when we talk about you know us working together, we should come up with a new strategic plan, and that strategic plan should be informed by what we have already put in place. There are a lot of assumptions, uh, misunderstandings, uh, you know, and what have you. Um, So we need to really kind of tease all this out in such a way that people can go and be able to pull down your podcast and get, you know, we could make this podcast as part of a curriculum of understanding, you know, just pieces of our history along with other kinds of things. And that's what a think tank will do. Um, mm-hmm. Our cultural, um, we, we need to understand. I mean, what what's happening, what I saw in Nigeria, I'll just give you a good example. Um, I know Muslims, I know Christians, I know traditionalists. And when I was there in 1979 in Nigeria, everybody, when a child was born, they were having a naming ceremony. You would see Christians in that naming ceremony. You would see Muslims. You would see traditionalists. You know, they would have the Babalaos and the different people doing, you know, working together. All right. In fact, they would not have the naming ceremony if they didn't have that representation because everybody had to contribute, you know. And then you have people in their families that may be Muslim, but they were also traditionalists, right? Um, however, I always say in Africa, that people can proclaim themselves as Muslim, they can proclaim themselves as Christian, but they're Christian and Muslim by day, but they're traditionalists at night. All right? (laughs) So this whole notion of how many Christians and how many Muslims and things like that, that I think is a faulty... (laughs) Uh, So uh, I, I think that we just need to have... A family conversation, man, you know, Definitely. and we have it's to needed. get over this, this whole thing. This is one of the things that I like about the ambassador is because we've been back and forth on this and she's adamant about it. He said, forget about it. We unity, man, you know, like forget about that. Well, what if we try this? And then, you know, don't worry about it. We deal with it. You know, we, we got to push unity. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and I think that's important. I think that's important. We we do need to do that as a people, mm-hmm. and we need to do it soon. Definitely. It's part of our survival. Yeah, you know. And I was talking about China. I want I want to really make this clear. Now, a lot of people ask me, "Well, let me go back." I went to China before I went to Africa, and I did exhibits and you know what have you. Uh, and people, black people, will come up to me and say. Why you go to China, man? China is racist. This is 1970s. Now, mind you, my first encounter with a South African was on the Great Wall. I have a picture, all right? Um, and I saw these brothers, right, on the Great Wall. And I was just like, it was a sight for sore eyes. You know, I was like, black people, you know? And I, <laughs> I went over to them. We started talking, uh-huh. found out they could speak English and stuff. So we were, we were talking. And so finally I asked them, I said, where are you from? And, like, two of them said Tanzania, the other one said Zambia, right? And it was like they looked at each other, all right? And I said, oh, man, that's great. So we kind of meandered, and finally one of them came over to me and said, we're really from South Africa. We're here to be trained, all right? They were part of the 
the training program that China had for South Africa. Like to train revolutionaries yeah. mm-hmm. against yeah. the apartheid. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, I said, oh, I have the pictures. Me standing on the, state, the, the, the Great Wall. So people would ask me, you know, so it, it kind of made me feel really bad and I always wanted to go to Africa, so um, Nefertiti and I, we were teachers, and so we went to Nigeria in 1979, two years after I went to China, all right? And that that's what really opened the door for me in terms of travel back and forth to mm-hmm. Africa. And all of my trips to Africa were uh, self-financed, mm-hmm. um, and people will sacrifice and pay money for clothes and cars and all that I put money into travel. You invested <laughs> in traveling. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. So uh, th- that's great. And and this is uh, our last question. Mm-hmm. Would you would you like to share one or two of your most memorable experiences during your journey through the African continent or other parts of the, the Black Atlantic? I'll, Do you have any that, that just I'll share. stick out? <laughs> There are a number of them. I, I, I mean, mm-hmm. it's just, you know, uh, I'll share... Two, and they all happened in Nigeria. Um, and the only reason why I'm focusing on those because that was my, the beginning of my relationship with the continent, you know. Um, I'll start with the negative one first. All right. So uh, I, uh, when I transferred to University of um, Boston after being denied financial aid at university, the Northeastern University, I, uh, a university of, of Boston University or Massachusetts? No, university of, of Massachusetts, Massachusetts in, in Boston. In Boston. They have okay. a university of Massachusetts in Amherst, Amherst which I, yeah. I have my graduate work there, advanced graduate degree and everything. That's in Amherst, which is two hours away from Boston. Okay. And um, But during that time, uh, I studied in the uh, Black Studies program. And I had a professor named Ijo Fodomi, who was from... from uh, Uh, Nigeria, and so he used to talk a bunch of crap about, <laughs> you know, he was going to return one day, and that if he did return, that we were invited to come to Africa, you know, and that kind of thing. And uh, so I always remember that, you know, and I was young and foolish at the time, you know. Um, and so um, Nefertiti and I, we were able to get chartered tickets from the Educators to Africa tour. Which, if you take it, if you buy a ticket and it's like you leave in July or you leave in June, you could do six weeks. You could do four weeks, six weeks, eight weeks, ten weeks. But if whatever you bought, mm-hmm. you can only leave on that date, and you only come back. And if you change it, then you have to pay a major fee. Mm-hmm. So we saved our money up. We thought we had saved our money up, but didn't take into account the fact that the currency change oh, so we yeah. we had like five hundred dollars and when we got there it, it went down to 250 you know so <laughs> we learned very quickly what the black market was and all of that but meantime it was it was um uh really uh destiny uh, because we went during ramadan all right which actually worked out for us because when we first went we were in the south um and and i said to nefertiti i says we have to get to the north all right 
we had two friends who were studying photography in Boston, and we had become very, very close with them. And they were Muslim, all right, mm-hmm. from Kaduna. And, you know, the northern part of Nigeria is mostly Muslim. Most, yeah. And uh, uh, so we we were able to get there. He says, if you get to Kaduna, my brother will take care of you. No problem. All right. Um, and uh, so we did get to Kaduna. But before we got there, we were looking for Dr. Ijo Fodomi. All right. That's the reason why we had to go to the north, because we figured if we hooked up with Ijo Fodomi. We'd and be this, fine. Was, this was your professor, professor right. from, okay. <laughs> so uh, we, he was at the University of Baden. All right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we went there and we said, uh, we're looking for Dr. Ijo Fodomi. And people would give us this kind of look. All right. And but, I never paid attention to it. But you, didn't you have like phone number or I, I, address or something like that? No, no, I didn't. This was back in yeah in the seventies. In the seventies, right? It, it, let me put it like this: He wasn't our sole uh, contact mission, you okay. know. Yeah, because we we had other people that we were in touch with, right? I see. Um, but we wanted to reach it when we realized our money had shrunk. <laughs> <laughs> We needed to find as many people as we could. Yeah. So uh, he said, oh, if you want to, he's at the staff club. Now, not knowing about staff clubs, all right? Uh, staff club at that time, I'm not sure if it's the same now, was where most of the guys that came there, professors came, they brought their mistresses, mistresses, right? You know. Interesting. Yeah. This is on campus. So I asked, I says, uh, does anybody know uh, Joe Fonomi? They said that, that he would be here. He said, oh, he should be showing up in a few minutes, right? Mm-hmm. Little did I know that he was a drunkard. Uh-oh. Right? Uh, and that's the reason why people were looking at me. I said, why, why are you asking right, for this for him. guy? Like, yeah, like, uh-huh. and uh, all the stuff about him having multiple wives and all this was crazy. No, nothing. Nothing of that sort. Um. So he comes and shows, oh, hey, you made it. You know, da, da, da. Yeah, I said, yeah. He said, oh, when did you get here? You know, we talked. And, uh, and then finally I told him, I said, look, um, you know, we need a place to stay. He said, oh, uh, uh, you, right now I'm, I'm in an apartment and I don't have enough space, you know. I said, look, I'll, we'll sleep on the floor. Right, if you have a blanket, we'll sleep. Oh, no, no, you didn't come all the way to Africa to sleep on the floor. Da, da, da. I said, Dr. E. Joe, Dr. E., I said, we need a place to stay. So finally, we convinced them, and so we stayed there. Mm-hmm. Um, at that staff club, I'm sitting on the side of the couch. You know how the couch has an arm? And I'm sitting on the side of the couch, and we're having a conversation. This guy comes out of, like, from over, and he comes over, and he says, do they sit on the side of the couch where you come from? Right now, I realize he had been drinking a little bit too much, right? Mm -hmm. All right. And I I also realized that probably the reason why he was coming over to agitate me was because he didn't get any rhythm from Nefertiti. And Nefertiti was with me. Yeah. And usually when you bring a woman, <laughs> it's not your wife. <laughs> so he thought yeah. she was fair game. 
Mm-hmm. But when she kind of pushed him off, then he comes to mess with me, right? Yeah. And uh, he came over and he said that, and I said, uh, excuse me, uh, I don't think I know who you are. My name is Akron, da-da-da-da, mm-hmm. what's your name? And so we talked, and he says, yeah, I'm just wondering, uh, you know, because uh, we don't, uh, you know, you must be an American, right? I said, yeah, I'm from the United States of America. He said, oh, you're one of the weak ones. Wow. Yeah, he came right out with it. And I said, uh, excuse me? He said, yeah, you're one of the weak ones. I said, uh, my ancestors adored much. If anybody's weak, is you. Because you're standing here like an idiot. I said, what, what do you do? <laughs> he says, I'm an engineer. All these roads you see, I saw, oh, the roads that deteriorate. After one rainfall, right? Uh-huh. Oh, he got mad. I, I just kind of, right? So did, did you get and into a physical what, what, altercation? What, what, this, I'm about to, to, okay. to tell you, right? So he was like, he was like, you know, fuming. And mm-hmm. so I got stood up from being sitting on, I wasn't in the chair. I was just kind of leaning, you know? Yeah. And I stood up. And as I was standing up, the... Bartenders, they wear white and black. I saw all of them kind of just come in and grabbed him and pulled him away. And he was yeah, saying stuff in Yoruba and all of this stuff, right? So uh, <laughs> later, one of the people came over to me and said, He's always a troublemaker, man. It's mm-hmm. always a fight. He's he's always looking for a fight. I said you handled him. You handled him pretty good because we've never seen him <laughs> really. You know, stood uh, up to him, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. And uh, so that that's always stuck with me. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, when we talk about self hatred here, there's also self hatred on the continent. You know, in in many ways. Um, he was so proud of what he did. Oh, I studied at many universities and, and said, you need And to, then what? <laughs> I, I, I said, you've lost your mind. You know, where's your mind? And uh, I said, I have enough sense to, to try to come back here to, to learn about my people, things like yeah. that. The second one, which is positive, uh, I always want to leave on a positive point. Mm-hmm. Um, the positive one was that we were in uh, the Osei Meishi Shrine uh, in Ibadan, all right, which is a shrine dedicated to one of the Odus of uh, Ifa. Ifa is a very ancient uh, practice um, amongst the Yoruba, but not only in Nigeria, it's in Ghana, it's all over the West Coast. Um, and uh, Rumila is the uh, deity. And so we go to this Yemenya shrine. And Yemenja is the force that uh, is a river in Nigeria. But in the diaspora, they now equate it to an ocean. All mm-hmm. right? But it was the Ogun River. Or not the Ogun River. The, the, um, the Yemenya was a river. i just put it like that. Um, because there are a number of different rivers. You have the Ogun River. You have uh, um, the Oshun River and what have you. But anyway, this particular priest was part of a uh, orphanage and they had a little boy. I have a picture of him. 
that they had asked us if we would like to take him back with us. He needed a home. Mm-hmm. And we weren't prepared for it. I mean, it was just not something that we were prepared to deal with. We went into her shrine, priestess's mm-hmm. shrine, and we had did the appropriate salutations and saluting and things like that. And uh, she um, got very quiet. And at first we thought maybe we had offended her. And um, then she started singing, uh, chanting, I, w- I would say. And as she was chanting, we were sitting there listening. We didn't know what she was saying. But it was such a powerful chant that something came over me and Nefertiti. And we had it was another friend with us. And tears started rolling down her eyes. And she just kept singing it. And then later she stopped. And it was very light in the room. She took a deep breath and she said, I hadn't sung that song since I was a young child. And then she explained to us that it was a song that was taught to villagers Mm -hmm. about those that had been captured and taken away. And that the song was about that they would return one day. Now, she didn't know us from a hole in the wall. I mean, we just had, we just met her. But for some reason, within her mind's archive, she recalled that song. <laughs> and uh, I have a picture of her. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the time, she was like 90-something years old. Wow. And I have a picture of her in my living room. Amazing. Yeah, yeah. Amazing. Um, and I, I have talked to many people who have traveled to Africa and have had similar spiritual um, Experience. experiences, mm-hmm. you know. And this is why it's important for us to understand that the reality that we're in right now is not the reality. <laughs> the spiritual world is the world that we have to tap into because it is that world that has gotten us to where we are today. Right, and that world is mediated by our ancestors because they have infinite wisdom on the architecture of that world, and even though they're not with us on this plane, mm-hmm. all right, they are with us, and our ancestors have developed ways to main, com- maintain communication with them to ensure our success as we struggle because the rape, pillage, and disruption of the African continent has had profound impact on the world. And I believe that as children of Africa, whether you were born here or if you were born on the continent, our job is to show what it means to be human, all right? And we have endured inhumane behaviors. We still see it, but yet we still have the strength to be human. Because like the last poets used to say, if they had known what they know now, the Europeans would have been slayed at the shores. But because it's not our essential nature, we have paid the price. That's a great way to put it. And on that note, um, 
Thank you very much, uh, Okram Burton, for this wonderful, wonderful discussion on the uh, civil rights freedom movements in Africa and the African diaspora. I would like to, to have you back at some point okay. <laughs> because there are a lot of points that you talked about that I want us to go deep, deep into, deep, especially yeah. no, we have uh, Robert Williams. I also know that you've traveled through Africa widely and we need to tap into that experience and what it means in terms of your work and in terms of uh, the black struggle in general, but also your work on William Henry Shepard who was a, you know, a civil rights activist who did a great, great job in, uh, in the Congo and here in the United States. Thank you very much for being my guest. Thank you for and, having me. And uh, I will talk to you soon. Okay. Thank Bye. you. Thank you. Ne jamu Africa, moi sunyu na tange.